Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today I am joined virtually by Pedma Maitland, Assistant Professor in the College of Architecture and Environmental Design at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo. He was formerly a Patrick J.J. Maviti Assistant Curator of, of Asian Art at the Cantor Art Center at Stanford, and he continues to be affiliated with the Stanford Center for South Asia. Uh, Pedman, th thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you for having me on today's uh, podcast session. It's, uh, it's fantastic that you were able to make time for us. Um, tell us, let's start off with talking about what you used to do at Stanford. Sure. Um, so at Stanford, uh, as you mentioned, I was the Patrick J.J. Maviti Assistant Curator of Asian Art. Um, and my kind of main charge when I started was to do an assessment of the entire museum's uh, Asian art collection. Uh, so that meant going through kind of the basically the storage and looking through all the objects that were in there and it's kind of long holdings. Um, nobody had kind of done an assessment of the collection for a number of years, I think a series of number of decades. Uh, and so we tried to do a complete assessment of everything that was in the museum uh, and related to that to start thinking of how we might um, reinstall the galleries to, to kind of rethink how um, art from Asia was presented in the galleries and in the museum. Um, and a second kind of thing that I was really focused on while I was at uh, Stanford was kind of thinking about how we bring a new focus on modern and contemporary art from South and Southeast Asia. Um, Stanford's Cantor Art Center had been focused for a number of years on kind of art from East Asia, from Japan and China and Korea, and had a kind of wonderful series of shows and works from that area, but they hadn't had as much attention on kind of contemporary art from South and Southeast Asia. So that was something I worked hard to think about how we might bring a focus on that area and art from that region. So um, I know there, there uh, I, I had a, a colleague in the British Museum in London who once took me down into the bowels of the museum where you know, everything is kept and you realize how much is not on show. Is it the same at Cantor? It is and, and the Cantor's history is quite unique. It used to be the largest um, collection of Asian art west of the Mississippi um, and the museum itself was actually huge in scale. Um, but then a series of earthquakes in California actually greatly damaged the building and along with that, much of the collection as well. Um, and so there is a massive amount of stuff that's um, below ground in kind of safely in storage that never gets seen. Um, and actually what we tried to do is make that more accessible to students and faculty. So one of the things that I was really proud that we did is we had a series of kind of salons or uh, workshops where we had graduate students and faculty come together to look at art that students had chosen just to discuss it and see it, um, whether or not it would make it into the gallery or not. It, it, it's fascinating to, to, uh, to see that, how much is not on show and then, and then kind of get into the thinking of 
who and what decides what makes it upstairs. Yeah, no, I mean, that's always been one of the kind of joys of working in museums is that you do get to kind of just go back there and see the works uh, yourself in person. Um, and I'm always shocked at kind of what doesn't make it up, why it doesn't make it up. Because um, you're always trying to show things that tell a certain story in the gallery spaces themselves. Um, but I think also a lot gets kind of missed or unsaid in that process as well. Um, so one of the things we were trying to think is how do you bring more um, objects from that are kind of normally not seen that kind of remain in storage usually? How do we, how do, how can we bring them into the gallery itself? Um, even if like it doesn't always tell a complete story, we don't know the full story about that object. Right. Um... So I'm thinking about what you said about, um, I'm not quite sure how you worded it, but kind of the, the way that we think about Asian art. And I guess I'm thinking about regionality. So often um, art uh, galleries or museums are divided up by area. And, and that doesn't really seem to apply, especially when we're thinking about um, religious statues or statues of religious figures. Is that something that you kind of philosophize about? Like, how does, how do you represent where something's from, but how do you also tell the much larger story of what's behind the ideas of that particular object? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question uh, um, and observation. Like, well, I, th I thought a lot about it, especially when I was at Stanford and, and it, it's a, it's a complex set of issues. And I think, um, for me, where it really grounded is that this idea of kind of Asia really was about kind of especially in the museum and a museum like Kenter, which aspires to be a kind of encyclopedic museum. Um, regionality started to de be defined both kind of geographically, kind of there's a sense of like Asia is, is this a geographic zone with these countries, but also temporally. And so there's a real sense of like what the time of that region was or the art from a certain period. Um, and you've seen that in museums across the country for years, like Asian art was set, like thought to stop, for example, at like 1400 or something. But there's been a lot of efforts to kind of push that, push that boundary, you know, break that boundary because it was seemed very arbitrary. Um, and so what we, and actually there's been a lot of interesting work at Stanford around kind of thinking geographically about like rethinking the boundaries of what defines Asia, uh, both geographically and historically. Um, I was really inspired by the, for example, by Karen Wiggins' work on um, cartography uh, and mapping as a process of rethinking kind of the borders. And so we were working a lot with the David, uh, the Rumsey Map Center, for example, to rethink how might you show different visions of the boundaries of Asia as part of an exhibition, uh, or rethinking how those the drawing of boundaries actually relates to the perception and production of art, and how that might be brought as a question into the gallery rather than an exploration. Because I think very often museums kind of bring, like, uh, attempt to like reflect this is how things are, that kind of truth of like, this is the divisions, this is how art developed in this region. Uh, and I was very interested in trying to bring more questions into the gallery. So like, how can we just start to ask questions about the art rather than kind of come with answers? How did you get involved with South Asia? And, and do you think of yourself more as a quote unquote Asianist or a quote unquote South Asianist? I'm not wishing to force a label on you, but give us a general sense of, of kind of where you locate yourself, I guess. Yeah, it's, those aren't necessarily terms that I would think of myself in. Um, but uh, I guess my interest in South Asia has kind of two levels. There was a kind of younger personal um, engagement with South Asia um, that started when I was, was young. My family was quite involved with Tibetan refugees in uh, the Bay Area. 
with kind of art and text preservation projects. And so when I was about 13, I went to India with my father um, as part of his efforts uh, to rebuild kind of libraries there uh, and went on a series of trips to kind of major Buddhist pilgrimage sites, uh, including Bodhgaya, Sarna, and then also to a series of kind of Tibetan settlements up in Northern India. Mm -hmm. um, and I followed that shortly after by an exchange program in India in high school. Um, and those kind of left an indelible mark on me and an interest in kind of connection to South Asia and, and communities there. Um, but I didn't really develop that as a kind of scholarly or professional way until I was m maybe about 10 years later, much older, um, when I ended up starting to do, get involved with kind of art and architecture preservation projects in India uh, mm -hmm. and Nepal, actually. Um, so just before starting my master's, I started to work uh, on a series of kind of uh, art projects around the Buddhist holy sites in India. Uh, and that actually led to an opportunity to be the assistant director, uh, art director, sorry, of the Swayambhu renovation project in Kathmandu, Nepal. Mm -hmm. um, and so that lasted for about two years and was really just um, one of the highest high points of my life was kind of some, something I was so proud to be part of. Um, and it was, I also during that period got to meet a series of people both like, I just got to meet some amazing people, whether it was like the craftsmen who lived in Nepal, uh, who had been working on, whose families had been working on this project, the Swambu Temple for generations, as it went through a series of kind of uh, routine restorations and transformations. Mm -hmm. I also got to meet um, kind of like, how do you say, community leaders in Kathmandu, um, but also a series of professors <laughs> who, uh, who had been studying uh, kind of the architecture of the temple of the Swambu particularly for, for a long time. One of them was uh, Professor Alexander von Rospat, who was a professor uh, over at Berkeley, and that kind of inspired uh, an interest in going back to get my PhD um, to look at the development of modern Buddhist sites uh, in South Asia. Right. Wow, a great story. Thank you. <laughs> Sharing that, and, and and so now you're at Cal Poly, and and what are some of the main projects? Are you still the things that sparked your uh, your love, if, if I may call it that? Uh, originally, are these things you're still working on now? Are you you doing similar type of work, or have you uh, kind of moved on from there? And and yeah, so tell us a little bit about your projects right now. Sure. Yeah, it's always um it's always interesting when you go to a new school or a new place that has its own kind of communities and interests and, and opportunities, right? And so it's taken, um, it's been exciting to kind of start at Cal Poly of teaching has taken, it has been kind of something new in a way, like I've, I've taught uh, at Berkeley as a GSI, um, but now teaching is kind of front and center as one of my responsibilities and that's been great. So I've, this year has been kind of largely filled with developing new classes, um, kind of some seminars that I've really enjoyed teaching uh, and also kind of rethinking, um, the idea of a survey course, which in a way is not dissimilar from like rethinking the galleries in a museum. Um, but one of my main responsibilities is to teach this large global survey course of the architectural history. Um, and that's been highly problematic for me. And so it's been a kind of year of trying to think about how do we rethink the contours of what a survey is and also its role in kind of the education uh, and undergraduate education. Uh, so that's been one of the big ones. The second one has been uh, an interest in kind of public humanities projects. Uh, I just recently became part of a public humanities collaborative um, at Cal Poly thinking about how stories, how kind of oral histories can be used um, both to augment kind of um, traditional histories or kind of suggest new, um, new modes of like historical production and, and, and study. Um, 
but also as a, as a means of more kind of community engagement. So history from and with communities. I'm also really interested in how that engages with like art and architectural projects, particularly and, and how oral histories might be a bridge for thinking about future architectural projects or art even as a way of, of inspiring stories and then kind of change. Um, and related to that is kind of uh, a lot of new interest in digital frontiers and, and digital spaces, particularly around this question of hope um, and how hope gets expressed in art and architecture and how we might facilitate conversations around that in digital spaces. So I want to hear a lot more about hope, but um, a seg from uh, <laughs> the things you're working on right now and, and hopefully into hope is just a quick question on how everything you had plans or are planning to do at Cal Poly have, uh, how everything has been affected by COVID. Yeah, of course. I mean, the impact has been huge. Um, all of our classes as everybody else's classes are online. Um, have gone virtual and that has come with its own challenges and opportunities uh, in terms of teaching. Um, I think also kind of just thinking about like the role of an education in this moment has also kind of come into sharp focus. And so I think there's been a lot of conversation about what a class can offer students, but also how students can kind of show up and guide their education and, and kind of offer what they think is important. So there's been a lot of conversations about that in Cal Poly and also in my own classes. So I think that's, mm -hmm. that's been kind of a huge shift that's taken place. And I think one that's, that's um, often challenging, but has been, has been important so far. I, I like that you, um, that you're, it sounds like you're kind of collaborative in a way with the students, like, okay, how we can, how can we make this better? And, I, I don't know. I mean, the virtual teaching has, has put so many question marks by how we think about teaching altogether mm -hmm. and, and what, um, what students are meant to get out of it. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that we kind of took for granted mm -hmm. that were never asked even about, uh, about um, quote unquote transmitting knowledge or, or engaging a students or encouraging conversation that, uh, the virtual environments really kind of flagged up that the ways we thought about them before might the models that we thought were effective might not have been all that effective to begin with i guess is where i'm going with this and it sounds like you're thinking that through and trying to make the virtual space more generative i think um yeah i think that's exactly right and i think it's also we have to for me at least have to really pair it with this um really the important questions about race in america that have kind of come up in race or race and kind of inequity around the world, um, you know, prompted by the kind of killing and death of, of George Floyd and, and all of this kind of Black Lives Matters and things like that. And that has also, I think, been part of the mix with the changes that have erupted from COVID and, and the kind of move to digital education. Um, and I think in light of all of that, it's been hard to kind of come with a normal curriculum. At least I found it really hard to just show up and say like, okay, we're going to learn about this and we're not going to talk about its, you know, social historical <laughs> context or its engagement with like uh, forms of kind of oppression or, you know, inequity, right? And so I think, and, and what that raised for me is that I often don't have the answers. Like I don't know the right way to talk about these things all the time. And I, I can only operate from kind of where I've come from in my, my own knowledge base. But I think so much of where we are now requires new kinds of approaches, new kinds of knowledge. And so, I feel that that has to be a collaborative effort. And I think the students, you know, the, have as much to offer to that kind of conversation, if not more, so. 
I've tried to make that part of my classes as well. And, and to think about classes as kind of um, opportunity. I, I continue to think that the classroom is an amazing opportunity to share ideas and to talk about meaningful and insightful kind of scholarship and material. Um, and so I think the best way to do that is to, to invite everybody to kind of come together and think about it as a group. Yeah. Tell us more about hope. So I know we need a lot of it. <laughs> I also, uh, aside from that, I know you are currently curating or you're planning to curate, um, you'll share the timeline with us, a, a, a massive uh, art exhibition in San Francisco called After Hope. Um, and so I'm I'm curious, I mean, presumably this predates everything that we're living through in 2020. So what sparked your interest in that theme and, and what does hope look like for you? And what, what happens after hope? And mm. you've answered all of that. <laughs> to, how has that changed then in, in 2020? Yeah, well, thank, thanks for asking about the, the program. Uh, so the program is After Hope. Um, it's at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. It's part of their new trilogy program, uh, which is where the museum partners with outside institutions and curators. And so as part of that, I'm a kind of guest curator co-curating the show with uh, Abby Chen and Viv Liu. Um, and that's been just an amazing process to be part of. I feel so thankful for it. And it's been, um, as I can talk about in a moment, kind of also kind of turned on its head because of all the events around COVID and, and the shutdown of the museum mm -hmm. right when it was about to open. Mm. But that's actually been a rather productive for this exhibition and this program itself. Um, but the idea of hope itself has been, how do you say, in my, uh, in my head for a while. Um, uh, it kind of lodged itself there while I was working at the Minneapolis Institute of Art um, in, in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was co-curating a show there with um, Yasufumi Nakamori, uh, now at the Tate, uh, and the artist Amar Kanwar. Uh, who had produced a really incredible film called Such a Morning, um, which remains one of the kind of more powerful films I've ever seen uh, or videos. And um, as part of that project, we were in Delhi one afternoon meeting and um, New Delhi, and we were having a conversation about the world <laughs> and um, about the kind of state of things and, and this idea uh, that comes up in Amar Kanwar's film of, of darkness and what does it mean to kind of meet or sit in darkness or the unknown. Um, and uh, out of that emerged this notion of hope um, mm. as a kind of theme that, that I actually really felt and continue to feel is really important. Um, and it emerged for me at the moment from this idea that uh, oftentimes we, we end up in conversations or we, we don't end up in conversations with people who have different viewpoints from ourselves, right? And part of it is because like, we almost can't meet. There's like one person saying one thing, <laughs> the other person saying the other, and it, they, there's like almost nowhere to meet. Right. And for me, right? And so we're just either shouting at each other or ignoring each other, but there seems to, the kind of ability to have a discourse around these topics seems to have broken down. Right. Um, and I started to think that maybe that had something to do with the fact that our hopes are fundamentally different, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And I think I always grew up and I was always taught like, you know, at, at the core, we all have the same hopes. We all want X, Y, Z for our families. You know, we all want X, Y, Z for the country. We all want X, Y, Z for the world. And I just found that 
it no longer seemed like we were talking about the same things anymore. We didn't seem to want the same thing in terms of education. We didn't seem to things, want the same thing in terms of like social progress. We didn't seem to want the same things anymore in terms of like the environment, right? And that, that kind of breakdown on this idea of what we hope for mm. seemed so fundamental and even before kind of like a step before the kind of issues that we didn't seem to be agreeing on anymore. So related to that came this question is like, okay, can we start to have new conversations about we, what we hope for? Is there a way to kind of facilitate a conversation where we might find some kind of common ground or, or, or way of talking to each other? Um, and I started to think that maybe art actually in an interesting way had, a, had potential for that. Um, mm. I, I don't know a good way to say it, except I always found a, thought of it like a triangle, right? Like if there's two people shouting at each other, maybe we won't see eye to eye. But if we like talk about a painting, <laughs> maybe we can talk about the painting, right? I can talk to you or a video, right? Like there's a way to have a conversation about that work of art that somehow just removes it from this kind of opposition, oppositional stance with this kind of partisanship. Uh, and maybe through art, um, there could be a possibility of having a conversation about hope itself, right? Um, and so that that prompted that that kind of had been in my mind and and like. I'd been, yeah, in, I'd been thinking about that and working on it and trying to kind of move that project forward for about three years um, and uh, had a lot of really great conversations actually with uh, people uh, like Disha Manon at, at Stanford about, about hope and art and um, also started to see that this kind of notion of hope was, was something that historically was starting to show up also in, uh, uh, in global solidarity movements particularly. Um, as a part of social commentary. So it seemed both as a way to like facilitate new conversations, but also a process of kind of envisioning and then also like working towards change through envisioning what the future might look like. So we might think of like all these new futurism movements and the ways in which envisioning the future or kind of hoping for alternative visions also becomes a kind of critique and commentary on the present. So all of that came together <laughs> to make a, a long story not that short <laughs> to bring it like it came together at the Asian Art Museum and, and Abby Chen who was there at the moment not Abby Chen who had just started uh, maybe a year ago at the Asian Art Museum as the new head of contemporary art uh, invited me to kind of work on this project on hope um, and we weren't quite entirely sure so we worked workshopped an idea of what the what the title and pro should be uh, and we arrived at this notion of after hope because it seemed like um, in a way that's where we are. <laughs> um, but also because it seemed, we hope, the idea was that the, the show itself could kind of um, sit on the pivot um, where we seem to be with a lot of issues uh, around both kind of going after hope, like a sense of like still hoping for the future and needing hope to kind of propel us forward, but also kind of feeling that maybe hope was getting in the way of a real change, right? Like maybe it was time to give up hope and actually just move towards action. Uh, and so the project title After Hope is really this idea of what does it mean to go after hope, but also what comes after hope? And, and can the projects kind of sit between the two, like can we, can we kind of move back and forth between those as we think about hope, both as a kind of forward looking thing, but also a kind of thing that looks to the past sometimes. So uh, this is uh, very intriguing and it's, it feels incredibly timely. I mean, maybe um, 2020 feels like a good year to you because <laughs> the issues have become really so crystallized. Um, I want to ask you about uh, just some of the events and spaces that, that, sure. uh, you could, that will be an exhibition. Like how do you, 
how do you portray the kind of philosophy you talk about? But I also want to ask about the philosophy. Are there going to be like lectures or are, mm -hmm. are things that are going to help us through these uh, really fascinating topics that you're raising? Yeah, it's again, it's, it's been an interesting year because actually for, for a while, for like every month, we had to rewrite the program. <laughs> like uh, we wrote it and then I sent it to somebody and they're like, this is outdated. I was like, I wrote it one week ago. <laughs> like it can't be that outdated. But so there is a sense that the moment we're living in is constantly shifting and changing. And as I said, it kind of has had a kind of pragmatic impact on the exhibition, which was set to open um, uh, in June, but was clearly delayed. And and in its kind of early iteration, it was the idea that was a, there was an exhibition and the exhibition remains um, a set of kind of video works by 50, over 54 artists from across Asia and its diaspora. Um, and those video works were kind of assembled uh, both from the curatorial team, but actually um, by sending out the prompt, the kind of prompt around hope uh, and this idea of after hope uh, and and garnering recommendations from around the world. Uh, and then those kind of recommendations came in and we kind of shortened it to a group of 54 artists. So all in total, there's about 90 people involved in the exhibition from, from artists and also recommenders uh, representing kind of artists, activists, scholars, curators. Um, and so that's been great. And uh, originally there was going to be a symposium and kind of a digital aspect. And so all of those have been kind of now reshuffled. Uh, and, and now in a way we're kind of rebuilding the program backwards, if that makes sense. So the, the kind of opening of the physical exhibition is, is to be determined, but hopefully will happen before too long and, and will be a moment for people to kind of sit with the, these films, which are just in a loop of about six and a half hours. And so each time you go in, there's the idea that each time you went into the exhibition hall, you'd see a different work, uh, a different thing, um, a different movie. But you could sit there and watch six and a half hours. Or you could also like sit there and just like get into six and a half hours of film. Uh, and again, we tried our best to kind of make it a little bit abstract. So they're organized uh, alphabetically by artist first name, I think. Uh, and, uh, and now we're starting to think of like a moment of reflection. Is there like themes that emerge between? Are there film videos that start to speak to each other? How might we rethink about the combinations between them? So that's the exhibition component. Um, and so one thing we started this summer, which we didn't expect, we started these now uh, kind of an international working group or working group sessions. Uh, where every other, or twice a month, we invite five artists and recommenders, kind of authors of work and recommenders of work um, to present on the videos that are in the program and the video as it sits in their larger kind of practice, but also how they think it reflects some, uh, in some way on this question of hope today. And those have been really powerful because for, for many of us, for, for us who are involved in planning the program, it's sometimes it's our first time meeting some of the artists or like authors or recommenders, but it's also an opportunity for all of these people to meet, everyone involved in the program to meet. So uh, we're hoping that these will kind of result in new kind of coalitions, collaborations, projects, uh, support. And, and that's actually been really powerful to witness is that these kind of uh, links between artists and curators and people around the world are, are actually starting to develop. So they're starting to find their own affinities with each other uh, and finding ways to kind of partner and support each other. Um, the other thing that's been really interesting to notice is that, that and Abby Chen said this nicely, um, that they really give a perspective from the ground, if that makes sense. So we're talking to people all over the world, some, you know, from, from Brooklyn to Mongolia or, uh, you know, Bangkok to San Francisco. And each one's talking about their experience at this moment and how they're seeing it, how they're seeing global events, but also how they're experiencing local events. Um, 
and if there are common threads to that or if they're distinct. Uh, and that's also something we're trying to find now ways to, to build on and reflect on in writing, um, uh, but also in kind of programming that's emerging in the fall. So in the fall, we'll actually have a lineup of kind of programs and more public events that feature interactive things with some of the artists in the program, opportunities to actually make art and programs with them, but also a few more kind of focused roundtable discussions on say questions of rage and religion or mm. the environment or um, solidarity, global solidarity as part of protest movements. Um, yeah. These are, these are virtual events, I assume. Yeah, so for the moment, those are all virtual, yeah. And, and we're really tried to stay away from kind of lectures and more have these always be kind of interactive workshops or roundtable discussions um, with the goal that the project's real ambition is to kind of build future, future projects and future conversations, yeah. Th that seems appropriate to, to an exhibition called After Hope. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Future now, in in relation to your teaching, uh, you talked about the challenges and opportunities of the virtual classroom. So presumably, there are opportunities here as well. I mean, the idea of talking to an artist or, or being in some kind of a Q and A session with an artist from Mongolia or even Brooklyn, to be honest, sitting here in the area. Um, you know, I presumably you wouldn't have been able to bring everybody over and then lots of people would have liked to have met those people and wouldn't have been able to. So do you see the, the virtual environment as also presenting really great options? Yeah, again, again, I think these kind of working group sessions really emerged out of this virtual moment um, and made it kind of possible to have these kind of group conversations in a way that, as you said, would never have been possible before when we would have had to try and bring everybody in or um, it just that kind of international kind of conversation for some, for some, like it, I guess there's no reason it couldn't have been possible, but it feels possible in a way it didn't before. Yeah, I think yeah. it's probably been um, quote unquote normalized. Whereas I think yeah. before, in the, in the before times, um, <laughs> the before times four months ago, <laughs> five months ago. <laughs> Six. It's it's. I don't know how we got to you know the end of summer, but anyway. Um, oh, it's six. Wow. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're past five, so we're moving towards the, the very weird semi-anniversary, and it varies from place to place. Um, but we thought of, of a virtual conversation or a virtual something, you know, Zooming people in, or um, Skype was the big thing then. And <laughs> always, you know, it was a second a class option. It was a kind of a plan B in case, you know, the live event wasn't possible, at least in my world, it was never considered a perfectly solid alternative. And I think we as a, a community, but I think probably the world over, um, of places at least that have access to good internet, um, have really rethought that. I mean, I think we're just, yeah. we're just different people from that perspective. And I think we no longer necessarily privilege the face-to-face -face interaction in a way that we did before. Totally. And I think along with that, what has really emerged from this project is also kind of question or like an in institutional kind of critique or, 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 or questioning of, of, of museum structures particularly, but also kind of cultural institutions and the way they engage with artists and, and the production of say an exhibition or a, a program. Um, one of the ways that shows up, for example, uh, and that we've been starting to think more about is how do you engage this idea of activism and process that is so much part of like an, an artist's activity and kind of 
the way that, you know, the art is made, but also its kind of significance in, in the community and the world, right? And very often when it gets into the museum or into the gallery, it kind of loses all of that peripheral stuff. It loses the process or it loses the activism and becomes this, this object. Even if it's a kind of film, it becomes some kind of object in a, in a gallery. Right. Um, and so we're trying to find ways that you can create spaces inside institutions that hold this kind of abstract process and conversation and, and thinking and, and engagement uh, and use that as a way to kind of expand the borders of what an institution or um, could be or kind of a gallery could be or, or kind of uh, the potential for art to really engage with different, different experiences beyond the kind of museum experience. This is a, 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 a we're looking at the, uh, the, at the end of our time, but I think this is actually a perfect note to wrap up on because it feels positive and it feels, I mean, I don't mean to be, um, uh, I don't know what the word is. I can't think of the word right now, but it feels hopeful. Good. <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, you know, a good hope joke is always good. Easy <laughs> pun, but I guess I just did. So I'm just <laughs> Um, just plug it. Tell us where we can find out all the information about the After Hope exhibition. Sure. Uh, so we're building, we're, as part of the effort, we're trying to build a kind of robust digital platform um, called After Hope uh, that will both support and serve as an archive and index of the exhibition. So you can see that at afterhope.com. Okay, afterhope.com it is. Uh, Pedma, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, telling us all about these various projects you've got going on and especially talking about After Hope. Yeah.